Well, well, well. Another day, another episode. How's it going, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Interviews with Chris. This is your host, Chris Tryon. Hope everything is going well out there for y'all. Hope you've had a good breakfast. Hope you're having a nice drive going to work. Maybe there's some beautiful scenery. Maybe there's not, and you're stuck in traffic, and my voice is your soothing therapy to avoid any sort of road rage. Who knows? Either way, thanks for tuning in. My guest on this episode is Brian Cook, one of my personal favorite bassists. So many bands that he's been in that I absolutely love and enjoy. Play any track Brian is on, and I am locking into that bass riffage. These Arms Are Snakes was a staple for me growing up, as was Botch, and later playing in Russian Circles and Sumac. It's all so good. Everything he seems to join, play on, or be a part of is pure gold to me. Just those tasty, delicious bass riffs. I mean, I'm about to salivate, and I'm not even talking about food. I could have talked purely about bass, but we get into other interesting topics. Puppies. Come on, who doesn't love a puppy? Growing up in Hawaii. Musical influences. Beer. Going to the gym and lifting weights. I mean, just talking about puppies and bass is a highlight for me. My wife always says I talk louder when I talk about things I love, like amps, tacos, puppies, but we talk about so much more. I'm really lucky to have had this chat with Brian. What a dream, and you are about to enter this dream world with me. Here's my conversation with Brian. Enjoy. Hey, Brian. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I am doing great. What's going on in your world? Uh, not a whole lot. It's a, it's a rare uh, sunny day in Seattle in the spring. So uh, I'm taking a little break from some yard work, but that's, that's about the extent of things right now. Are you gardening anything in particular? No, just, uh, you know, it's we're finally coming out of the the dark days of the Northwest spring. So it's, you know, there's just the general lawn maintenance, weeding, all all the fun stuff, uh, the the planting of, you know, tomatoes and things like that. It's going to happen here later this month, but for right now it's more just, uh, the boring grown up stuff. Well, you're going to have some tomatoes. Maybe you might be able to have a salad with those beers that you're always posting, you know, on your, in your backyard. Hopefully, you know, that's, uh, I feel like every, uh, August I, I hit my tomato saturation point because that's all I like eat once they start coming in, but I'm, I'm ready for it. I feel 
vitamin C deprived. So <laughs> I'm ready for those days. Hey, well, there's plenty to talk about, but the front runners for our topics of discussion, I believe, are going to be puppies, a mixture of death metal and soft rock ballads, and beer. How does that sound? Uh, those are all things I feel prepared to talk about. Hey, that sounds like my dream fantasy world, and I'm dragging you into it, or maybe you're dragging me into it, because I feel like that's stuff that you like too. Yeah, yeah. Either way, you know, let's 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 join hands and walk down that path. <laughs> okay, let's do it. Well, how's your puppy doing? Aussie Labradoodle, right? That's correct. Yeah, Connie is his name. Uh, confusing, uh, confusing to a lot of people as it tends to be associated as a female name, but uh, it was our placeholder when we started thinking about dogs, and now uh, I'm not sure if it's short for Conrad or Constantine or <laughs> Cornelius, uh, but yeah, he just goes by Connie. He's about eight months old. Well, I love all the photos that you're posting up of him. It's kind of funny. I, I chuckled on one of the posts that you had put up. You had said, this is a dog account now. Come back for music stuff after <laughs> the pandemic. When I, when I saw that, I just kind of blurted out laughing because it's like, ain't that the truth right now? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's tough because, you know, in the social media age, you can, you can tell very quickly what kind of content people want. So it's, you know, if I picture, if I post anything on Instagram, that's like a guitar, (laughs) you know, like anything band related, it's far more popular than anything that's like, you know, me hanging out at home with a dog. But uh, it's like, I've got nothing to give people right now because all I can really, I can show you another picture of my guitar, but it's, you know, there's not a whole lot going on in the house. That's a, super exciting visually for people that are, I don't know, music heads. I'm, I'm not someone that's like constantly buying new gear and cycling through, you know, pedals and guitars and amps and stuff. So it's like, I got, yeah, you're not a gear nerd. You don't have that gear acquisition syndrome or anything like that. Just like, Hey, I got a couple of things here and there, but you're not um, a fanatic. Yeah. Like I definitely enjoy playing with new things, but the big issue that I sort of discovered uh, over the last, I don't know, 10 years of touring, especially internationally is, you know, it's so expensive to fly with equipment. And, you know, Russian Circles is a band where we, you know, we, we try to always play a song from, you know, every album in the catalog. So we don't, you know, we're not like, I don't know, and you're like utilizing a, different pedals during different ex- I guess, exactly. eras of the band. So I, exactly. that makes it, I never even thought of that. Obviously, there's staples in there, like the bass whammy. Um, I mean, I could talk about this forever. But yeah, there's certain pedals that are going to be there. But I can only imagine like, oh, this one's awesome just for this tiny, tiny part. It's like, oh, we got to play that song. Do I need to like, like space is truly coveted when you're traveling internationally. Yeah. And I mean, those pedal boards that we fly with are already just, you know, I mean, it Massive. costs, it costs a lot to fly with one of those cause they're oversized and they're overweight and, uh, they're flight cases too, for the most part. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of like if you start adding anything else to the equation, it's just, it starts making any sort of, uh, it just starts adding to the expenses of touring. Cause it's like, all right, if I add another pedal board, then, that's like another 200 bucks to get this thing wherever it's going. And, you know, so it's, it's fun to have new toys and to play with them at home, but it's like, I I have to 
be very pragmatic about adding Selective things to the arsenal. Pragmatic, yeah, exactly. Hey, well, no photos of clubs, crowds, maybe some pedal boards in your bedroom, but I think maybe when live music comes together, you know, Connie can go backstage and you could just kind of merge those two worlds. And I think that's the best of both worlds, just rocking out in puppies. Yeah, I, I often think, it's like, I feel like there's like some dream post I can make that's, you know, me and a puppy and a guitar, uh, <laughs> like with uh, booty shorts on and that'll, that'll cross like all the, they'll, they'll check off all the demographics. Um, yeah, you, you're going to be a marketing genius after you finish posting that up. Yeah. But, but um, shifting it a little here to talking about music. From what I understand and I know, the only bands that you're currently in and that are active at this current moment are Russian Circles and Sumac. I'm seeing that some live dates are finally flowing through Russian Circles, announcing a colossal weekend in Copenhagen, and will soon be announcing on May 17th a fully rescheduled European tour. I know as a fan, I am super pumped. I am excited but you as the individual, the musician that essentially has had your plans derailed and has been in a state of limbo for what seems like forever, and you've been at the mercy of like, hey, when are things going to be back to normal? What does it feel like for you? Uh, I mean, it's exciting. Um, just, you know, I'm sure everyone's in the same boat where everyone's ready for some return to normalcy and, and public life and, you know being able to go out and do the things that we used to do. Um, Absolutely. So very excited for that. You know, there's, there's still a lot of trepidation on my end just because, you know, if you, if you wait, you, if you wait until everything is 100% certain to be reopened, then you're going to be booking things out, you know, six, seven, eight, nine months in advance uh, just because, there's going to be a mad rush, you know, of people trying to book things. I mean, that's, that's already happening now. People are. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. I mean, artists across the globe are finally releasing all these future tour dates. And like you said, it's a mad rush. I'm wondering, like, how logistically that's even going to work. Like, it just feels like everybody's off to the races right now. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not I'm not sure. I mean, we kind of got our foot in the door early on. And, and a lot of it's just been, you know, we... We had this European tour booked uh, March of last year, um, and we were, you know, I, I had my bags packed and was about two hours away from leaving for the airport when, you know, our European booking agent and our manager were like, we need to have a conference call because this doesn't seem like a good idea for you guys to get on a plane and go to Europe right now. And, you know, within 24 hours of making the decision, you know, pretty much every band we knew that was in Europe at the time were scrambling to get flights home from Europe because everything was closing down. So it's, it wound up being a, a very close call. Like it's, it's who would have it, ever thought that is just so wild. You know, I've obviously have interviewed plenty of musicians and just the same thing that, Hey, they were about to embark on this huge tour and, you know, right at the nick of time, they realize like this is not the best thing to do right now otherwise we may be stuck over there for who knows how long yeah i mean at that point our italian shows had already been canceled and right all right well we'll just we'll have a couple days off and we'll you know 
book something to fill in in the meantime. And then it was like, Ooh, Spain doesn't look like it's going to happen. And then I was like, yeah. France, you know, France, it was funny. Cause it was like, you know, uh, anything that was over, I think like a thousand cap room was, was being canceled. And it was like this first time where we were, <laughs> we had pre-sales where it's like, damn it. Like normally we'd be under that, but we're actually looking like we're going to sell over a thousand tickets in Paris and, that's now a curse because that means that show is going to get canceled. And then it, all of a sudden it's like, that means like a week and a half with no shows. And, you know, it was just quickly building up to a point where it's like, there's not going to be a tour by the time we get there and we just need to uh, cut our losses. And, you know, so we canceled or we didn't cancel, but we postponed it and rebooked it for the fall. And then that quickly became apparent that that wasn't going to happen. So, it got rebooked for uh, right now, like we were supposed to be in Europe now, and then that got rebooked. And so it's, you know, the promoters have by and large been the ones calling the shots because the promoters have been like, hey, no one's going to come out to this. I don't want to lose money. You know, I don't even think the city's going to allow the show to happen. So we've just kind of been relying on the, the local promoters to sort of, I don't know, tell us when to come back. <laughs> so we were sort of lucky in that sense that we, you know, everyone's eager to, to rebook us, you know, the, the tickets have already been sold, you know, it's like a, no one's been refunded yet. Or I think a few people have been refunded based on the city because some of the shows aren't going to happen, but for the most part, it's, you know, your tickets are valid for the next show. So these promoters are trying to fill in the dates, but they're trying to do it safely. And, you know, so I think that's kind of helped and that we're sort of already, we already have our, our people established. Right yeah, well, hey, I feel like the tide is finally turning here. And hopefully we're finally getting to, uh, how can I say it? A time where, hey, people could finally enjoy live music. I've kind of joked with some friends. I feel like every show here on out is going to have the same energy of a hardcore show. It could be Peruvian flute music or cool jazz or whatever. Just people are just going to have all of this energy like pent yeah. up inside of them that whatever they see, it's just going to be like just so gratifying and just, I I mean, I could watch anything. I'm just going to be pumped, you know, oh, to, totally. to, see, to see it. And I, you know, I know a lot of people, a lot of musicians as they become, you know, touring people, like they kind of become, I don't know that they start viewing shows and such as, as more of a work thing than a pleasure thing. But I've, I've always been someone that's enjoyed continuing to go to shows. So it's, you know, for me, it's, it's been hard not playing shows, but it's also been really hard not going to shows as a, as, just as an audience member. And I'm definitely, definitely jazzed to see some, some live gigging. Well, I love that you mentioned that because in another interview you had spoken about, there's the side of being the musician and the creator. And then on the other side of the equation is, I don't know if the word is being the consumer, I guess the consumer, whether you're buying retail goods or from the band or just simply listening. I mean, myself, I've been going to museums more. I mean, I love art. I, you know, regardless of the particular medium, whether it's video or photography or actual installations with wood or metal or paintings like to me it doesn't matter if it's Ansel Adams or Monet but like you had stated like 
hey, I love going to record stores. I love buying albums. And right now, you know, there's kind of been that void of there's no live music. Um, and I'm not saying I'm trying to fill it with something else, but I'm definitely trying to take advantage of what I can. I mean, obviously, when it was when people were unable to go to record stores, it's not like I'm barging into a record store. But now, you know, with social distancing, I mean, just simply being in a record store, I've always appreciated it, you know, that I need that physical, that visceral feeling of something being in my hands and me visualizing it. Actually, yesterday, I went to the art museum for a little bit. And it really hit me at my core, like how much I truly need to be able to see like art in the flesh. Yeah. I've, I've gone to, I've only been to one museum over, over COVID. Um, but I, I went to the, we had the Nordic heritage museum here in Seattle and a, uh, a sort of fashion slash, uh, like fabric print, uh, designer that, uh, my husband and I like had a, had a show there. So we went, we went for that and it was, you know, one of those things where, you know, only a certain amount of people were let in at a time and you're kind of instructed to follow a very specific path through, sure. through the museum and stuff. And, and it was nice, but it's definitely a different experience when you kind of feel like you're being sort of herded through the museum a little bit, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, at least you were able to catch some art. And I was going to say, you said Nordic and um, hopefully no historians want to bash me online, but was it like anything like Viking related or something? There, there's some of that at the museum, uh, but this is, uh, I, I feel bad because I don't actually remember the designer's name, but it's uh, a Scandinavian fashion designer for primarily for women's clothing, but uh, it's all kind of, uh, I don't know, kind of 60s kind of. I don't know, a, sort of a mixture of like pop art and sort of uh, folk art, fashion design. And I don't know, we we went for that and it was and it was cool. Are you going to incorporate that into your live performing? No, <laughs> it's actually more of my, my, my husband's interest. But, you know, it's it's a, it's a thing that's a little contagious. So it was fun to fun to see. Hey, well, staying in the art realm here writing, you know, actually writing music during the pandemic, I feel like you're already a pro. Um, the reason I say that is essentially the majority of the people that you write and record with don't live in the same city as you. Besides Aaron Turner, your bandmate in, in Sumac that lives closest to you, from what I know, you've always kind of, in a sense, how can I say this? you are already familiar with sending tracks back and forth. I feel like you could have written a book on how to be in a band during a pandemic because you're already a pro at it. Um, you would think, but, <laughs> but not, not really. Uh, I mean, that's one positive outcome with, I get, you know, it's a silver lining, I guess. I don't want to say a positive outcome, but it's it, one of the nice things about uh, being sort of trapped at home is that, learning to work on songs remotely um, and swap files and, you know, working in uh, actual computer programs for all that stuff is something that at least with Russian circles really needed to happen a while ago. And it just didn't. Um, well, now you're kind of forced to, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, 
one of those things where like we always sort of had our way that things worked and you know we'd send mp3s of demos we were working on but we we weren't you know we weren't building like iphone memos like hey this riff you got to check out this riff exactly or you know like one of us would record something in garage band and send it to the other one as an mp3 and they're like okay got it and you know then you know three months later when we're all in the same room then we can work on it but Be like, uh, oh i remember that that sounded pretty cool i actually wrote a little lick over this but it was never you recording over something that had been previously sent to you is that yeah about there's right no, there's no building of songs and ah uh, okay and again it was kind of it wasn't really necessary you know five years ago for the band uh because you're traveling you're also writing you're also pretty much in a tour bus all the time you're i mean you're living with your bandmates you know so i I feel like that would be a little bit easier to talk about things or actually hash out any sort of writing that you need to do you could just hey fly out to chicago for a week or two weeks and bam do that you just now that's not really an option yeah exactly and you know the the core of writing uh duo in the band is really Mike and Dave, you know, I, I joined the band afterwards and, and Mike and Dave had always kind of had their way of working and they, you know, both lived in Chicago. So it's that they always had the opportunity to kind of meet up and work on stuff. And then they could send me these practice space demos that they've been recording and I could work on them. And then, you know, when I'd come into town, then we'd tinker with them and mix them up. But there was always kind of like this, this process that was initiated by the two of them. But Mike now lives in LA, so now there's not even, you know, the the common what is it? Common factor, common denominator. Yeah. <laughs> of, okay. Everyone's in a totally different state, and so, and that was uh, the case when we wrote and recorded the last record, Blood Year. And in hindsight, we probably should have had this this process that we've come up with now over the course of the pandemic. We should have had this process for the blood year writing process. But, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, if something works, why fix it? You know, and that, that was kind of the the mindset we've always been in, but you get, you get older people, you know, move to different cities, you know, things change. And then sometimes you kind of realize it's like, Oh, like maybe the ways that used to work don't really work. You've got to adapt any, anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the change is so slow and incremental that, uh, you don't realize that, oh, this is this this kind of doesn't work anymore. And so <laughs> it's been nice yeah. to have this this uh, this year where it's like, okay, now there, there's not even the option of doing it the old way. So let's you know let's figure out a new way that works. And hey, well, besides recording and writing, I'm sure you've been staying busy in other ways. Uh, you said you were gardening earlier. I've got to ask, what would you say has taken up the majority of your time during the pandemic? As far as recreationally or you know is there something that i don't know you're collecting stamps or i I have no idea what you're doing but is there something that you would say that hey i've been doing this a lot of um you know i've been trying to create uh something that looks like structure (laughs) because you know it's i one of the issues i always had with tour is i would get home and it's like oh there's all these things that i wanted to do while I was on tour, I was like, when I get home, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And then, uh, you know, you get home and you're just so happy to be home and to not feel like you have to be 
somewhere at this time. And it's, it's like such a shift in thinking that, uh, well on tour, you've got to be here. You've got to sound check at this time. You've got to be at another city at another time. You got to do press at this time. It's almost like you're always on a schedule. Yeah. Everything's always in motion, you know, and you just have to make sure that you're, you're, you're keeping up with it. But then when you get home, it's like, Oh, there is, there, there there really isn't a schedule anymore. And in your things aren't just, uh, you know, the, the, the train isn't going to keep rolling. Uh, (laughs) yeah. You know, depending on whatever I'm doing. So it's, it's been kind of nice just to try and figure out, uh, like pretending that I'm retired or something like, all right, how am I going to fill my day? And so, (laughs) well, you said it in another interview um, when the pandemic was breaking out that it's almost been that there's been given a, you well, people have been, I don't know how to say this, a gift of time. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it was unforeseen and unfortunate in the majority of cases and circumstances, but it's almost been like a double-edged sword to a certain degree. Yeah. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm probably just being a Pollyanna with it because there's definitely been a lot of uh, a lot of struggle in the last year. You know, there's definitely been some very low points in the last definitely. year. Um, yes. You know, and not and not not anything uh, that I don't think other people have experienced through all this. But there is definitely, again, a lot of silver linings. You know, I think. Uh, I know both Mike and I have had like just sort of annoying health issues that are really just a matter of not recuperating from (laughs) touring all the time. So it's been nice to have some time at home to, you know, tend to tend to the body a little bit. Um, You know, as I was mentioning, sort of the creative angle where it's like you get so used to like, doing things a certain way, even if it's maybe an outdated way of doing things that it's been nice to have this gift of like having to rethink things and having to approach the writing process differently. That's been super exciting. Um, for me, it's been nice to be home. You know, it's like, well, you're usually, you're usually on the road in like three to six months out of the year. I mean, I don't know exactly the, you know, the scheduling and of your tours and the, previous years but you're in bands that tour you're on the road that's what you do yeah and and with the last uh the previous album guidance you know we kind of went into that uh really with the idea that we were gonna tour smarter and not harder and that we were gonna you know we're gonna split a u.s tour into two halves and we're gonna split europe into two halves so that we weren't out for six weeks at a time you know we were doing like three to four weeks, but doing it, you know, twice in, in each region so that we weren't trying to knock out all of Europe in one fell swoop. And that sort of worked, but then we, you know, we, we got offered multiple tours with Mastodon. So we did all those. And then when you're doing a support tour. It's never quite as lucrative as doing a headlining tour. So then we, you know, did these like victory lap headlining tours afterwards to, you know, partially just to reach out to people that might have seen us for the first time on the Mastodon run, but also just because Got it. you kind of needed to, you want to do another tour, you know, another loop for your actual fans and, and all that. And, but by the end of it, it was like, oh man, we've done like six US tours and like, I think we did six European tours on that record. And it was 
just like, oh, this isn't what we had intended at all. You know, we <laughs> thought we were going to do less touring on this record, and instead we did more than we ever had before. And, you know, I was having like, at one point I lost my voice for like six months, which doesn't really matter, you know, in an instrumental band, but it was extremely frustrating to not be able to well, talk. It's annoying in a nuisance. <laughs> you can't talk to people at the shows. You can't, you know, yeah, you it, can't it just, it's not a fun thing to be going through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, I, I still don't know the doctors don't even know what caused that, but, uh, part of me thinks it's, it's just from spending so much time on airplanes and with all the pressure changes, like the body takes a while to recalibrate from the pressure change. And I think it just caused some sort of weird inflammation in my throat that pinched off a vocal cord nerve. And so it was like, you know, just things like that, where it's like pretty, pretty taxing on the body, you know, and, and we're not a band that's in a bus, you know, we're still in a van. So it's, you know, you're not, you know, you're still driving yourself, you know, you're still waking up early for an early van call. You know, it's, it's. Yeah. And I think I had said bus earlier. That's what I meant to van. It's not like you're uh, making martinis at night in your big bus or whatever. Yeah. It, w- it would be nice, but yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, you know, the beauty of being a three piece is that even if you bring out, you know, three crew people, you can still all sit in a 15 passenger van and everyone has their own seat. Yeah. And a so, big, uh, Econoline for yeah. van. So. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's, it's a good way to jam Econo and all that. But, uh, there's times where it's like, man, it'd be nice to be in a 15 piece band. Cause then you would have to be in a bus and there, <laughs> there just wouldn't be a question about it. But, um, Hey, well, you've been passing the time in a variety of ways. I know you had said that, there's been some nagging health issues, but I've got to ask weightlifting. I'd say you're pumping metal, but I think it's concrete since you made your own weights um, out of concrete mix, right? I don't know if you're weightlifting yep. right now, but um, uh, how exactly did you get into that? And are you doing it still? Yeah, I still, I still do it. And that's kind of been one nice thing is, you know, I started, I mean, I started lifting weights in, in college, but didn't really know what I was doing. And I think so much of weightlifting is like diet related and in college I was vegan and like broke. So <laughs> I, was, I was probably getting a thousand calories a day and like five grams of protein. So it wasn't, I was not a, a successful uh, weightlifter in any capacity, but uh, starting maybe, I don't know, not quite 10 years ago, I, I, kind of actually looked more into the research and what I sort of needed to do to be better at weightlifting. And it's been great, but you know, again, if you're touring a lot, then it's, you have like six weeks to kind of build up your gains and then you're gone for six weeks and then you come back and you're starting all over <laughs> and you know, that's kind of frustrating, but, uh, what do you listen to when you're pumping iron? Are you listening to like Enya or are you listening to Black Flag, or uh, what? What gets you in the mood for ultimate gains? Maybe you got to send me your playlist once I get yeah. to the gym one of these days. I'm definitely, uh, I'm definitely a, a, a death metal at the gym guy. I mean, I'll listen to to anything that's somewhat animated and and you know invigorating. But um, yeah, I definitely started listening to a lot of Morbid Angel uh okay what 
back in, I think I really started getting into weightlifting around 2012. And, you know, I went to a, a, a very gay friendly gym on Capitol Hill here in Seattle and it was great, but it, it's just, I, I cannot hang with the music <laughs> that they, <laughs> they pipe in. And so it's like, what, what is like the most solid brick of sound that will drown <laughs> out, you know, this yeah. just third rate club music that's piped in. And it's like, Oh, death metal, death metal is just an unrelenting block of sound, especially morbid angel where it's just like, Oh, there is always a double kick drum going. Okay. Let's, <laughs> I'm just going to listen to covenant at top volume on doing my workout. And that'll, that'll, put me in the zone so um yeah i feel the same way when i'm jogging i mean yeah maybe i could listen to some i don't even know rhythm and blues or pop but i'm usually listening to some heavy heavy music that's what pumps me up that's what gets me going i don't know if it's part of my dna i love all types of music but i can't jog to like miles davis or john coltrane oh, no. I mean, like no, no. i need to be listening to i don't i can't i don't know like full of hell or cattle decapitation or something that's just like, let's get to the next level here. You yeah. know, you know, so totally. Well, and that you're was, gonna, you're going to have to send me some of these, your playlist, because by the end of this year, you're going to see a transformed Chris. Okay. Oh yeah. Ma- <laughs> massive gains. Yeah. I, I hope so. I always kind of joke that the only reason I have muscles is due to lifting like amp, like tube amps and guitar cabs like down into basements when I was oh, younger, yeah. you know, like Ampeg A10 fridges. Like that's the only reason why I have muscles and probably uh, why I'm in, I'm <laughs> my, my bones and body feels the way it does sometimes. Oh yeah. That's the, there's like this, uh, there's a definite realization once I started getting into weightlifting where it's like, Oh man, my squats are just terrible. Like I, my, my squats are really <laughs> pathetic, but my deadlifting is like on point. Uh, yeah. Like I feel pretty good about my deadlifts, but it's just like, Oh yeah. Cause I, I'm doing a deadlift every time I'm putting a tube amp on top of a eight by 10, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's like, Hey, let's do two Ampeg SVTs here. Yeah, exactly. Any, any load in load out is all, all <laughs> the, the back and back and butt, you know, but I'm not, I'm not doing lunges or squats, you know, on a nightly basis. So, Okay. Well, maybe the first time you come into town, um, I'm here in Phoenix and I've seen you guys already originally from El Paso. I've seen you plenty of times out there. You're going to see me. I'm going to not, I'm going to be in the worst shape of my life. Um, when you first, no, I mean, I don't want that to happen. I was just going to say, Hey, I'm going to look normal or however I do. And then the next time come around, you're going to be like, Hey, you you did what i told you and i'm like yeah i feel you've been great. listening to morbid angel covenant haven't you? yeah there yeah, you okay. go yeah that was the secret recipe but um i'm gonna switch things up here do you know where i'm going with this brian i do not okay it's the random round oh questions gotcha questions i've created from knowing you being a fan watching you perform live and getting a background check done um, just kidding. There was no background check. <laughs> you got a dossier on my whole life. <laughs> no, no, no. But um, I need to stop using that because sometimes people don't laugh and they think I'm serious. But no, no background check or anything like that. But I've obviously created some random questions and there's been some that your fans have requested as well. Are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So what are some of your favorite film soundtracks that have influenced you as a musician? Uh, let's see. Um, 
for the last few years, I've been really into the Beyond the Black Rainbow soundtrack. Oh, um, Sonoma Caves? Yep, yeah. And that one is, uh, yeah, I don't know. That one's just extremely satisfying. And I feel like, uh, is Jeremy, is that the guy's name? I don't, I don't, I, uh, Jeremy Schmidt? Yeah. I think. I yeah. feel like he was like a little bit ahead of the curve on all the sort of John Carpenter. That was a great movie. I need to rewatch that. Like I yeah. have the actual vinyl record. Hey, you know what? I'm going to put that on tonight while I am pumping some iron. Um, I yeah. only have some dumbbells, but no, that I'm totally familiar with that album. Yeah. Yeah. That one's, that one's great. Good, ominous, like kind of futuristic vibes, but, uh, been super into that. Um, you know, a bunch of the Popolvu soundtracks. Uh, you know, I, I don't even think I've seen any of the the Herzog films that they scored, but all those soundtracks I think are just awesome. You know, the Nosferatu and Corpo Verde, and yeah, I mean, I don't even know. A lot of those, I'm not even sure if they're soundtracks or just random, random albums. But the Popolvu stuff, I've been super into. The Valerie in her Week of Wonders soundtrack by uh, Czech composer Lubos Pfizer is really good. I'm not familiar with that one. I'll definitely have to check that one out. That's a fun one. It was put out, or was reissued, I should say, by uh, by Finders Keepers probably about 15 years ago or so. And I, th- I think it's been reissued a few times since then. But it's kind of weird, old-timey European kind of kind of folky lots of choral work in it um not not anything that sounds particularly appealing as i'm describing it right now so i i do apologize it is a very good soundtrack <laughs> uh you know weird twisted movie with a, a soundtrack that's alternates between being very beautiful and, and very creepy um along those same lines the the cannibal holocaust soundtrack is ah, a pretty wild one i love uh, horror yeah i do i am not a fan of the movie uh i went to go see it i dragged a bunch of friends to see it at a midnight <laughs> movie showing and if you know anything about the movie uh yeah it's definitely not one that you want to take the uninitiated to without uh a a strong uh advisory at the beginning there was actually an advisory at the beginning they told you they told the audience that uh you could only get your money back if you left within the first half hour but we stuck around for the whole thing and i I think my friends still haven't forgiven me for that one but uh the soundtrack is is fucking weird and completely inappropriate for the tone of the movie but uh it's so weird and inappropriate that it's kind of fascinating and uh yeah i've enjoyed that one I mean, horror soundtracks to me, I love whether it's John Carpenter or Fabio Frizi. Um, he did the Beyond. That's one of my favorite horror movies. Really, really great film. And obviously, I like composers like Angelo Badalamenti, who's done the majority of David Lynch's work or uh, composed music for it. But I was thinking soundtracks in a certain way. Being in an instrumental band like Russian Circles has that similar, I don't want to say like soundscape, but there's moments where I feel like, hey, you realistically, you guys could definitely do a movie one day. You know, that'd be awesome. Yeah. And I, I wouldn't be opposed to it. It'd be a very different process for us. But 
Yeah. I'll make some calls after the interview. Okay. And yeah, uh, for sure. A- a- another, <laughs> yeah. Another one that just came to mind those, those, uh, I'm not even like that big of a Nick cave fan when it comes to like Nick cave and the bad seeds and all that. Like I'm sure just, it, I'm just, I love Nick cave. So I'm itching to see what you're going to say ab- about it. Yeah. No, no hate by any means. I, I think he's a fascinating <laughs> person and, uh, yeah. but like something, something about the actual timbre of his voice just doesn't like, uh, it's, it's not, it's not butter to my ears, but, uh, his soundtrack work with Warren Ellis was a very big deal to, uh, to Russian circles, especially the, uh, the assassination of Jesse James soundtrack. But uh, the proposition's a good one. The proposition, the I saw that one at the store. Maybe uh, like it must have been before COVID occurred. But um, I, that was one I actually wanted to check out. So thanks for telling me that. I'll I'll have to check it out now. Oh yeah, it's it's good. I mean, the movie's great, but the the soundtrack is is awesome too. So you know what? I don't want to drag this out. I think you know what? I've seen the movie. Is that where somebody is essentially like a prisoner out like in the desert? desert am i making something up is that some, uh, sound, yeah you got, like that? you got the right general the idea. gist of it okay yeah. i'm gonna have to revisit it but um another question we're still gonna remain in the realm of random questions you've said you're a sucker for soft rock power ballads do you have an all-time favorite uh i'm a very big fan of the uh, sort of 80s peter satara era chicago ballads. <laughs> so uh, you know, hard to say, I'm sorry, or you're the inspiration or my dad's uh, going to love that because yeah. he loves Chicago. Th- that was like my, my initial, like being seven or eight and being like, Ooh, like this is, this is my jam. Like my, my first cassette tape purchase ever was Chicago 17, just cause I, I love those, <laughs> uh, those ballads. Um, so yeah, I will always have a soft spot for if it, if it came out between like 1980 and 1986 and it's a soft rock ballad, I, I probably, I probably dig it. Well, when I think of like my own personal favorites, I don't know if they're favorites, but I think of like rough boy from ZZ top or November rain from guns and roses. Gotcha. Some, sometimes I'll just put those on while I'm washing the dishes and just kind of like questioning my life. But, um, but no, they're yeah. great. I mean, I have a, I have a yeah. friend that made a, like a three hour Spotify mix called Kmart mixtape. That's just all the, <laughs> all You're the You're going to have to send that one to me too. Okay. Oh, it's great. Yeah. It's just like all the, all the like soft rock shopping jams from, from the eighties and in one mix. It's, it's quality. I don't know what got into me like doing these old, um, like music-based questions like the soft rock power ballads but here's my next one would you rather every time you need to focus on a challenge like any sort of challenging task like doing your taxes you have to listen the rats round and round or you've got to rock a bleach blonde hair metal haircut both of these are for the rest of your life oh wow um i don't (laughs) i don't know i don't think i'm gonna have hair much longer so i'd probably go with the haircut just because you know, I, I can, I can deal with some rocker hair for the next two to five years, but I think by the, after that, it's, you know, it's going to all be gone anyway. So <laughs> life, life will return to normal. Here's my last question. The Moog Taurus pedals that you use, what got you into using them? Um, rumors from what I've heard out there is that you were binging, listening to a bunch of Rush albums, like moving pictures and just wanted to rock out like Getty Lee. Obviously, I'm just kidding, but oh, what, I mean, what got you into it? 
that's not actually far from the truth. Um, <laughs> okay. Cause I, I was definitely, I definitely fell very hard for moving pictures when I was probably about 20, 20, 21. Uh, that was a staple for me during high school. Um, their live album live in Rio de Janeiro. I think oh, that's okay. the DVD that I think that was one of them. I used to listen and watch it all the time. Like Tom Sawyer was like my song <laughs> in oh, yeah, high Tom's- school. Well, it's funny because, I mean, I knew, I only really knew Rush for Roll the Bones uh, as a teenager, just because that, that kind of came out right around the time I was getting seriously into music. And I was not a fan of that record. Um, <laughs> and, and then I just didn't, I didn't know like the, the classic rock hits until I heard Tom Sawyer on the radio. And I remember hearing it and being like, oh, this sounds like, this sounds like no means no if no means no was like an arena rock band and that was my frame of reference for it and i was a huge no means no fan so like i i, I kind of yeah, rob right from no means yeah. no i mean it was a huge influence for you especially in your style of play and tone yeah, wise huge, huge like my easily you know him and mike watt are like my two favorite bass players and realistically rob Wright is much more in the the style that that i play so yeah i got super into rush after hearing that and then the local guitar shop in uh tacoma where i lived at the time had a set of the original moog taurus pedals come in and i was a broke college student so i couldn't i couldn't buy them but i just remember like seeing them and being like oh man if, if only you know and then ben varellen uh he actually went in and bought them and I was like, God damn it, Ben, you, you fucking <laughs> bought him from out underneath me. Not that I was ever going to get him, but, uh, yeah, he bought them. You're still desiring them. You're like, oh, those are, those could be mine in a parallel exactly. universe. But, you know, uh, I played in a, a band with, with Ben at the time and we, when we initially Roy. start, yep. Yeah. And initially it was Ben, well, initially it was Ben and his brother Dave. And then I came on board and in the three piece configuration, uh, Ben was playing the Taurus pedals and guitar, um, but they required so much maintenance. Like you had to clean out the, the contacts all the time. And it kind of soured me on the Taurus because it just seemed like it was too much work to keep it up. Yeah. You just want to plug in and rock out. Yeah. It's, it's like a Fender Rhodes or something where, you know, when you talk to someone that has one of those and it's like, you know, you have to spend all this time <laughs> working, working on the interior guts of it. And I didn't want to do that, but, uh, like, you know, fast forward to when Russian Circles was doing the Empros album. Uh, we recorded the song Skipple. And then we decided we were going to play it out live. We kind of realized that we had we just done too many overdubs on it. And, you know, the, the root of the song was kind of disappearing. And uh, I was like, well, if I buy Taurus pedals, then all the root notes are taken care of and we can... You know, Mike and I can both kind of do our more noodly stuff on top. And, you know, I found a, a cheap uh, cheap set at uh, Rock and Roll Vintage in Chicago. And, uh, yeah. The rest now is history. Yeah. Now I, now I try to shoehorn it into everything we write because it's, I don't know. It's hey, fun. well, it sounds great <laughs> as well. And I'm going to go now into the random fan questions. Let's do it. Cameron from Northern Ontario wanted me to ask you about your upcoming solo cosmic country project. 
I'm guessing he's talking about Torment and Glory. I, I believe that's what the project is from what I, I gather and what I've researched. What more can you tell us? Yeah, so that's the project. Uh, it was something that I'd sort of been working on for over a decade, I guess, at this point. Um, back before we recorded Ambrose, I, I had this idea of doing a, a sort of lo-fi, noisy folk record um, that I, I'd been over at our friend's house super late one night, and he had an old copy of Bruce Springs, Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska on his turntable and it was so dusty that when you played it, it it was just sound like white noise with like little snippets of Bruce Springsteen kind of cutting through it. And I was like, that's what I want the record to sound like. I just want it to be like, like you're getting at this transmission of some really lonesome country song through. I love that. Like a busted transistor radio, like, yeah, like with massive amounts of fuzz, but Hey, there's a acoustic playing in the background exactly um and so i tried kind of doing it on my own on a four track for a while and i just couldn't really get the vibe right it just never sounded right and i think a lot of it was that i was you know writing these full songs but to to capture them the way i wanted to i kind of had to deconstruct them and be willing to give up big chunks of it to, to noise and uh, one song from that project wound up on Ambrose, uh, the last song, Praise Be Man. It, you know, it was actually a four-track recording that I, I brought to the Russian Circles guys, and, and they liked it. And uh, when we recorded that album, we, we took that demo and we played it in the this big hallway of a warehouse where we were recording, and we recorded the playback of this song playing in the hallway. And then we took the playback and played that in the hallway and recorded that. And we just kept doing it over and over again. Like a, I love like that. A, yeah, it was like an Alvin Lucier experiment. And then uh, we mixed all the different passes together so that you had all these weird resonant frequencies and it just sounded kind of murky and weird. And that was like the closest approximation to what the project has had, ever been. Has, had ever been. Um, yeah. But, you know, this last year, uh, I was like, what else do I have to do? You know, especially once the winter kind of rolled along, I always get seasonal affective disorder. And I was like, I just, I need to have a project that I can work on at my own pace. That's, you know, it's, there's, there's the Russian circle stuff to work on, but you know, a lot of that's waiting in a holding pattern while other people are working on their contributions. And I'm just like, I just need something of my own to work on. So I, I can feel productive every day. And well, I can't so wait these, to hear it. Yeah. So it was just me learning how to record at home, which again was a, a skill set I kind of needed anyway. And it was these songs I'd been sitting on for however long. And yeah, it something to do. My friend Ben Chisholm, who's a Chelsea Wolf. Chelsea Wolf. Yeah. He mixed it. Uh, Sergeant House is going to put it out. Yeah, and I'm pretty pretty excited about it. Hey, well, can't wait for that. My next question here is from Jeremy from Fresno, California. asks, what's your favorite bass riff you've written and favorite you didn't write? I could only imagine it's going to be pretty hard to answer that, but is there a couple that come to mind where you're just like, 
wow, I, I wrote that? Damn, I could I could hear that on days on end. Um, maybe you're that way with the majority of your riffs, but is there one that kind of stands <laughs> out to you? Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, I mean, I really like a lot of the These Arms Are Snakes bass lines just because a lot of, I, I would say most These Arms Are Snakes songs kind of originated around a bass line. You know, we are a very collaborative band, but it was always a band where we would show up at practice and it was like, all right, who's, who's got something, you know? And uh, it often turned out to be a, a bass line that I would throw out and it would turn into a song. So a lot of those I'm, I'm pretty, pretty partial to um, specifically. I, I don't know. Uh, what about one that you haven't written? One that I haven't written. Uh, it could be even recently you were just pumping some weights and you're like, damn, that baseline makes me want to just throw these kettlebells across the room. I don't know. Honestly, one of my favorite recently is uh, there's this Aranzi Pazuzu song. Not not on their most recent record, but on uh, the previous full length. And the song title's in Finnish, so I, I can't <laughs> tell you what it, what it is. <laughs> but it's the really long song in the, in the middle of the album. It's like the 17-minute long song. And it starts off with just this awesome, snaky, like just kind of warped sounding bass line. And uh, yeah, that's definitely one where it's like that uh, informed my own bass playing. Uh, Sanaya off of the Last Russian Circles album, Blood Year, uh, definitely has a bass line that's probably indebted to that Aranzi Pazuzu song. Um, Going back to No Means No, there's no shortage of No Means No songs that I think have incredible bass lines, whether it's uh, it's Catching Up or Rags and Bones, Mary, Zero Plus Two Equals One, like all that stuff is... Uh, I love it, it added to the formula that is Brian Cook's bass playing. Definitely. Like rob wright was always one of those bass players that you could actually hear you know and that actually seemed like it was a lead instrument so very very inspirational well i'm definitely going to ask a little bit more about that in the influence of your bass playing in a bit but i've got another random fan question this one's from an international fan alejandro out of malaga spain asks where was your first time traveling abroad ever and he didn't specify whether it was being in a band or not. So I'm just going to say, hey, whenever, whenever you went abroad the first time. Not counting Canada. Uh, it was actually when Botch went to Europe for the first time. And we played Malaga. We hey. Did, we did hey. five <laughs> shows in Spain. And Malaga was one of them. And that's the only time I've ever been there. But it was a, it was a good show. Um. But yeah, it was like our first European tour and it was seven weeks long, which was very long for a band our size on our first tour overseas. But it, it's still one of my favorite tours ever just because it was everything was new and exciting. And yeah, you're a seasoned veteran, but I can only imagine that being your first band to tour internationally, everything was a completely new experience. You're pretty much thrown to the wolves in regards to how to tour internationally. 
Yeah. You know, it was before the Euro, um, you know, it's like every, every country was like new currency and, and, a, and a border crossing to deal with and no GPS, and, you know, no cell <laughs> yeah. phones, no social media. So that if someone doesn't answer their phone, you could direct message them. It was, you're pretty much SOL if you can't get a hold of this person that booked your show, I'm sure. Yeah. And there was, and there was, plenty of that <laughs> in spain especially <laughs> just like showing up to a show in uh, bilbao and you know it's like sorry uh, that i'm laughing at your misery i just it's just that i'm i'm thinking about how it was back then i was kind of on the cusp of when the internet finally began to become a tool for promoting and touring so it's not like i had to worry about like a, a telephone book or trying to find whoever promoted this show in their like, you know, parents basement and be like, yo, are we going to start this show or whatever, you know, instead of just direct messaging them. Yeah. I mean, that, that was like the, like, yeah, that was like the era of, uh, like not even having like load in times or anything. It's just like, here's where the show's at. <laughs> and like, okay, no phone number. You just kind of like show up at a, place <laughs> and, and hope that uh the people that are there know what's going on and you know. yeah it definitely doesn't operate this way that way anymore here yeah. but um i got a couple more here scott from rockaway new jersey asks what's the most fun or interesting recording experience you've ever had and why um let's see you've had a bajillion so Maybe just a particular moment or something that is just like, wow, this is crazy that this even happened or wow, this was devastating or uh, who knows, you know, just something that off the top of your head that you could think of. Yeah. Fortunately, I've never had a, a devastating studio experience. That yeah. I don't know why I said devastating. I think I was just trying to be like something crazy, interesting. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I think Geneva that album will always be really special to me just because writing it was kind of a, like a fulfillment of a dream. You know, we wrote it at a cabin up in, not a cabin, sorry, but at a house in the woods in Wisconsin that uh, Dave, our drummer was caretaking. And it was just kind of what I'd always wanted to do with it. It almost sounds like the beginning of a horror story. Yeah, <laughs> it it felt like that at times, uh, but you know, it's like were you're you isolated. Li- were you sleeping like in the barn house, like on some hay or something? No, it was a very <laughs> I'm just kidding. Very <laughs> suburban interior to this house, you okay, know, carpeting okay. and all that. Like it was it was a new build, but it was right after the the housing market collapsed, so it couldn't sell. Um, so. I don't even Dave, know why I said barn house because you said cabin and house. So I'm, I'm yeah. now I'm just making up stuff. <laughs> it was in the woods, but yeah, you know, we just camped out and we just spent the days sort of writing and rehearsing very leisurely. And then we went into electrical audio with, uh, our friend, Steve Albini. Brendan. No, or, or, well, I mean, as far as his studio, I it guess. was his studio. Like, yeah. My bad. Um, it was Greg Norman, his, his right-hand man, was, uh, was engineering it. And then our friend Brendan Curtis from Secret Machines was producing it. And we had, a, we had a ton of recording time, and it was just, like, very relaxed and exciting. And it was 
you didn't have that pressing deadline to be like, you got to do this right now, maybe just a little bit more relaxed, as you said, to make sure you had everything the way you wanted. Yeah. And it was like a total fulfillment of this vision that we had had. And, uh, I don't know. It, it just felt like, a very definite step forward as, as a musician. That was exciting. But yeah. I don't know. There's, there's other records along those lines that I've kind of felt that way. Um, there's no, like, it was I always fun. It's always fun making the Roy records with, with Ben just because they were, it was always just like hanging out with friends and having beers and so, someone being like, Oh, I have a song. And then you just kind of write it on the spot and record it. And it was done. And uh, with no real dream of it going anywhere, it was just, literally and yeah, not any super ourselves. refined production just diy i've got some songs let's crack open a beer and let's just play and record yeah no expectations you're, you're not worried about what the record label is going to say or <laughs> what the audience is going to say because you're just assuming no one cares anyway and that was a uh, that's kind of nice and that was kind of what i was going through with the torment and glory record this winter where it was you know i i my aspirations were very low for it. I was just going to do a cassette, maybe put it on Bandcamp, and uh, it was just a way of entertaining myself and getting these songs that I'd been, you know, kind of obsessing over, uh, just out. <laughs> and it was very satisfying. Hey, well, I love that. This is my last one here. Jinx from Indianapolis asks, how do you go about moving past doubt during the writing process? Hmm. I think anytime you're recording, there's this initial magic moment when you're hearing the very first playbacks of, of drums and bass and it's like, oh, that's what the song sounds like. And that's like such a good sounding drum set. And like the bass sounds good. And like, it's super exciting. And then once you kind of get guitars on top of it, you're dealing with like a, a mix that's not done, you know? And so it sounds unbalanced. And that's usually where my doubt kind of comes in, where it's like, oh, maybe the song's not good. <laughs> you know, you're hearing things at the wrong levels and like the impact isn't there but now i kind of know that and i know you just have to work through it and i sort of have to remind myself that there was an initial spark you know things were written a certain way because it it resonated with everyone in the band and you can lose that in the process but it's there you just have to remember how to find it so if you have faith in a song at some point it's always going to have that magical quality to it. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes you just have to trust the process, but exactly. Hey, well, thanks so much for answering those questions, Brian. No problem.
and back to music and more specifically bass. You grew up in Hawaii. Your first show was seeing Fugazi as a 14-year-old at the University of Hawaii. Damn. I'm sure that was probably life-changing. I mean, what a what a band to see your first show. Yeah, it was uh, very formative. And uh, I don't know if it's like the best possible thing I could have seen for my first show. <laughs> the or best the worst. introduction for a yeah. punk. Because it definitely, it, you know, definitely uh, forever informed the way I, I look at music. Um, very powerful show. And obviously with a band like Fugazi where there was so much beyond the music, but in terms of what made them great, you know, just the way they operated as a band, the way they performed, all that stuff was, yeah, pretty Oh, we could go on and on. It seems like Fugazi usually creeps up on the majority of my interviews because they are such a such an important band, really, for anyone that's a part of the punk realm or punk world. And like you had said, I have musically Brendan Canty and Joe Lally are like my power rhythm duo of of yeah. all time. And but even beyond that, like you said. For individuals like myself growing up, where I was trying to find my voice and my identity in in many ways, they were a band that it was just like, okay, I'm not even, I love the riffs and I love the music, but if you take a deeper look, they're talking about much more important things that go beyond that. So that was the first point where I, the first time where I felt like, wow, this is a band that has truly changed my life. Absolutely same <laughs> uh yeah i mean it's funny now uh like maybe two years ago i was just like you know i'm gonna brush up on my guitar playing because i'm so used to you know when i play guitar at home i do like finger picking stuff and i don't do like a lot of like riff writing or riff playing or like fast strumming stuff so i was just like i'm gonna sit down with a repeater and just learn all the guitar to repeater which isn't hard <laughs> like it's like the songs aren't super complicated but man like just that level of intensity and speed and like the little the little nuances in the playing um i mean songs like blueprint that pumps yeah. me up i love it yeah it's such a great record and it's it was like one of those cool reminders where it's like it's not even about like the notes it's just about the way they played it you know like nothing about that album is difficult musically like it's it's all something that can be probably taught to anyone that knows how to do a power chord but it's you know they played it with such uh, like intensity frenzy. yeah passion and it, yeah and that totally translates you know even if you if you're not looking at it from a musical standpoint but just in terms of like an energy transference it's it's undeniable well shortly even after that moment you picked up the bass a right-handed bass instead of a left-handed bass since you're a lefty, but it's like, how are you going to find a left-handed bass, I guess, in Hawaii at that yep. point, right? But um, do you still remember what your first bass was? Yeah, it's, well, it, I think it was an Anchor bass was the name of the company. Uh, I'm familiar. I, uh, yeah. The only reason I remember it is because uh, Dave Knutson, who was a guitar player at Botch, he bought one super randomly a couple of years ago, <laughs> just to have a bass in his house. And I was like, holy shit, that's, that's, 
That's my base. That was my first base. I didn't even like <laughs> bring it to Washington from when, you know, when we moved from Hawaii. Like I just, I had it for maybe, I don't know, maybe four months before, uh, before I sold it. But yeah, that was my, it was like a $99 base. It was right-handed. Uh, I went with bass just cause I was like, well, I'm guitar seems too hard. Um, <laughs> Yeah, especially if I'm going to be playing with the, the wrong dominant hand. So bass seemed easy. I learned a hey, bunch well, of Pixie I think, songs. I think and, you've done pretty well for yourself. But um, I'm, I'm good yeah. at faking it and convincing people <laughs> I'm, I'm good. At, I am not a musically talented person. Hey, well, for faking it, I've been a fan for a very long time. And I'm a bassist as well. So just listening to you has been over the years has been an absolute pleasure. My first time seeing you play was actually with these arms are snakes, March 22nd, 2009 at the launch pad in Albuquerque oh, wow. with okay. Terramelos. I believe that was the date. It was back in the day, but like you've said, your style of play is extremely influenced by Rob Wright of no means. No Mike Watt from the Minutemen. just your, I guess the ability to, stand out in the mix and then you listen their style of play is more of a a lead style of play of course i listen to other when i listen to your music i hear other influences such as david sims from the jesus lizard or bob weston from shellac just even tone wise but am i missing any other influences or is there anything that really helped formulate your style of playing or maybe even tone throughout the years in your formative Um, years i'd say yeah i mean I think another big one was, you know, the Northwest had a lot of these, uh, these like distorted bass masters for lack of a better term, I guess, but like, uh, Godhead silo, uh, with Mike Kunka, hopefully I pronounced his last name, right. But yeah, Godhead silo was a huge one. I remember seeing them at a park in Olympia and it was just, you know, bassist and a drummer and a big wall of amps and a really loud <laughs> bass guitar. And I was like, Ooh, yeah. Who, who even needs like a normal guitar? You know, if you got that, uh, Joe Preston with Thrones, I don't know how many times I've seen Thrones over the years, but you know, his ability to fill out the sonic space. With, well, which is kind of crazy guitar. because he's filled in on some Sumac shows as well. I know it's pressure. It's like, <laughs> it's like, damn it. Joe's going to take my job. <laughs> It's like, yeah, that's like everything super... comes full circle. And that is, you know, super. I mean, even as a fan, it'd be like if Joe Lally was like, hey, I'm filling in for you. It'd be like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, all right. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, it's, it's been a, a pleasure to get to know Joe over the years. And, and I'm humbled that, you know, he fills in with Sumac uh, because he is, his music is definitely loomed large in, in my life. Uh, you know, Jared from carp and big business is another oh, one. Just um, great, great. Tell- I mean, it, it even boils down to, um, playing with, uh, Cody Willis and in mm-hmm. big business that yep. it, it's essentially like a lead instrument because it's just them two. And the bass riffage is, I mean, I could go into this being just a purely bass podcast, but I mean, we're talking <laughs> about some great, great bassists for sure. Uh, the thing I love about Jared, uh, 
because uh, these arms are snakes did a little bit of touring with them back in the day when they were still just a two piece and Jared didn't even tune the bass. I mean, he would tune it <laughs> to himself, you know, he'd make sure all. Yeah. Four but he was probably like tuned. super flat probably or, or whatever, you know, I'm assuming yeah, that's what you mean. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, Oh yeah. He's like, I, I tune it like, I don't know, maybe like once a week, you know, like a couple times over the course of the tour, I'll just sort of realize that like it's, I'm having to sing things differently and then I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll actually plug it into a tuner and get, get it all back up into the right frequency range. But I was like, God damn, that's fucking, that's crazy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, to make your voice, to tune it to how you're playing, especially if you're not tuned, you know, properly for in the first yeah. place. So weird. Hey, well, you've got plenty of influences here and talking a little bit more specifically about your tone, you've got a vast array of pedals. We've already kind of spoken about how you're not per se a gear nerd, but you've definitely used them a good amount to formulate your sound. What I'm going to ask here is, let's say if you were to be sent to an island or to another planet, and you could only take one fuzz pedal, one delay, and one other pedal of your choice. Could be modulation based or a looper or whatever. What would they be? Three pedals on an island with a bass and amp of your choice that somehow has electricity, or maybe Mars. I don't know. Elon <laughs> Musk. Elon Musk can hook you up or something. I don't know. But um, maybe not even per se favorites, but maybe they could be whatever you feel is. Um, how can I say it? Would be what you'd want to be able to conduct sound in that that trio or they could be completely you know your faves it's just that i know you've dealt with a a lot of pedals so not trying to put you on the spot just like hey what are some that come to mind uh let's see i'm trying to think uh i mean in terms of a fuzz man i don't know there's just so many i think i i think i um what shot myself in the foot here because we could talk about big muff variants to super fuzzes to exactly uh, so maybe i need to scratch um, that but maybe what what are just some of your favorites you know like I, let's say we're gonna i don't know how you plan on wow this is gonna sound morbid how you plan on dying but i was gonna say if you wanted to be <laughs> but as like if you were gonna be put you know some pedals are gonna be put in your coffin or something like hey that one has got to go in there oh wow um i don't know i mean Honestly, this uh, the Fuzzrocious Rat Tail Rat King. I'm, I'm not even sure what he's calling it now. Uh, uh, Ryan. I mean, I, I interviewed him too, and just great products. I know that that Rat Tail is a big part of your sound. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of. I mean, of all the things on my board, that's probably the one that's been around the longest. Just because it's a, uh, I don't know. It's, it's it's been a mainstay. Yeah, it has, and it's. Um, you know, if you do a conservative setting on it, it gets close to that Rob Wright from No Means No sound. Uh, you know, if you jack up the distortion a little bit, it's just a good blown out I don't know, Mondo distortion sound. I mean, it sounds sound. beautiful on, on the mids, you know, as a bassist that's trying to stand out. You know, mm -hmm. I love low mids and it's always worked well in that regard. Yeah, I, I just, I, I love that one. It's a good driving base tone and again you know if you have it set kind of conservatively it's almost just more of like a compression thing you know it just kind of squashes the signal and gives everything a little bit of a bite to it and i don't know it's it's uh i love that one uh in terms of actual fuzzes it's it's harder to say because i feel like different fuzzes have such vastly different applications you know there's like sure. 
like as you're saying, you know, like the super fuzz versus a, you know, like a swollen pickle versus a big muff clone or, I mean, there's any number of big muffs that you could clone. So it's all a little different. You know, I think the, the army green big muffs are always just a good, safe, (laughs) awesome fuzz sound. And yeah, it's a good starting point, especially if you're wanting to sound heavy and, and still defined, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember, uh, seeing the locust at some point, uh, probably in the late nineties. And I remember like hearing Justin's bass tone and being like, Ooh, whatever that is, that's what I want. (laughs) And it was, it was that green big muff. And I was like, all right, I'm finding one of those. And at that point you could still, it was like early enough that eBay was around, but like before the prices on those got crazy high. So Uh, everything has gone through the roof. So I mean, I could only imagine back in the day be like, I don't, I don't know how, how much you bought it for. I'm going to guess maybe like 60 bucks or 80 bucks. Now it's like 300 or something. Yeah. And, and even less than that. I mean, I think I was getting them for between 30 and 50. They were just, but I was also destroying them regularly because I was in a hardcore band and, you know, like swapping the foot switches and yeah. And, and those, yeah, those foot switches on them aren't, aren't, they're like super proprietary and weird. Like they, like they don't, unless you're like a, engineering wizard that you can't just swap them <laughs> out so yeah I, I destroyed and rusted through so many of those and uh dwarfcraft made a pretty good approximation of them with the uh the eau claire thunder so th- that's a pretty sweet one that i i own a couple of those and, and use them pretty regularly hey um, well i know that we could go deep into the world of effects but here's one i was gonna kind of follow up on it doesn't have to be effects, but is there any piece of gear that has eluded you, you know, from having kind of like how you're talking about the Moog Taurus pedals, you eventually got them, but is there something right now that's like the holy grail of, of a, whether it's an amp or a stringed instrument or a pedal that you're like, I want this, you know, one day I really truly want to have this. Uh, this is going to be extremely disappointing, but not really <laughs> like I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy with everything that I've, I've got, you know, there's definitely times where, you know, there'll be something like, Oh, it'd be nice to have, you know, one of those 12 string electric Rickenbacker guitars, but it's like, I've tried playing them and my, <laughs> I, they're so fucking hard to play. It's so many strings on such a narrow neck that it's like, it's cool. Well, it seems and- like you kind of approach it whenever they come to you, whenever a, a pedal or an instrument comes to you, it's just like, Hey, this is the moment in time to be using it instead of actively searching out, like I need this to, to do this or that. Yeah. I I would say that's entirely accurate. You know, there's times where I'll have a musical idea in my head and I'll try and play it and I'll be like, Oh, this doesn't work with whatever I have, but that's pretty rare. And I'm usually much more, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like I talk about this all the time. So I, I apologize to any listeners that have, that have heard me talk about the whole David Byrne, how music works principle, but like David Byrne's whole thing is he's like, dude, most, most musicians aren't like conjuring music out of some great chasm in their mind. You know, it's like you, they're writing music based on what sounds good in whatever room they're playing it on whatever gears available. And that's, 
that's how music happens. Gear is like a I love hearing of, that. of tools and environment. And that's kind of the way I look at it where it's like, I think it's, it's a little weird when people go chasing tones uh, in the sense where, you know, if someone's like, Oh, this is what, uh, you know, this is what Jimmy page played on Led Zeppelin two. I'm going to replicate that. And it's, I have to have that no matter what, for me to be able to create my own piece of music. Yeah. It's just weird. And it's, it's so much cooler when it's, you know, people are like, well, this is what I have. Let's see what I can do with it. Like th- to me, that's more exciting because it's, that's where the, the magic of, of happy accidents and. Hey, well, happy accidents. Happens. I, I'm happy to hear about that. And I'm happy to know that this is going to kind of go into where I'm going to ask for your fans out there for both of your bands, Russian circles and Sumac specifically Russian circles right now. I, I saw you post up that in terms of future material that there's a new full length in the works. Does that sound about right? Yeah. So yeah, we're set to record come September. Uh, we're going to be doing it with Kurt Ballou again. Ah, uh, just like blood year. Yep. Yep. And then we're going to kind of do what we did with blood year. We're, you know, we're going to track all the drums and hopefully all the bass uh, at electrical audio. And then we're going to do okay. guitars at, at God city. Um, but yeah, that's the, that's the plan. Uh, Can't wait to hear it. I mean, always have had great results. So, I mean, it seems you kind of have a formula of the people that you're like, you're wanting to record with and even the locations, for instance, electrical audio. I know that Mike used to live in Chicago, but it seemed like that was kind of like your home base for tracking stuff um, for, for a good while. Yeah. I mean, the, the beauty of electrical audio is just that everything just sounds inherently good there, you know? So it's, it just winds up saving so much time with mixing and all that other stuff, just cause you know, you set up, the drums in the, in the A studio and you throw their and mics you know on they're going to sound good and it just sounds awesome. You know, and you don't have to, you don't have to do all the studio trickery to get them to sound good. Um, you know, it, it's, we did blood year and it was just like, you know, there's definitely some fine tuning of the bass and the guitar and all that. But Dave was just sort of like, you know, first, first mix back. He's like, yep, that's it. <laughs> isn't that's a, that's a dream right there to be honest you know yeah. as a musician that's recording because i know for myself recording i love it but it's also very stressful because i'm like is this how i want it to sound yeah like, and sometimes you know i've had that issue you know with uh empros and with uh sumax uh love and shadow both those records it was really difficult to get a bass tone that I felt good about. And it wasn't anything to deal with. It wasn't like a issue with the equipment and it wasn't an issue with like the, the person engineering those records. I think it's literally just like, it didn't feel right in your core. Like, like I, think it's, I think, I think it was literally just an acoustic, like a room acoustic thing. Uh, huh. the, cause like both of those recordings, uh, I, I just remember, you know, listening to it, in the room and being like, it just sounds fucking weird in here. And then, you know, it's like, but it's the same 
amp. It's all the same shit I was playing on two days ago in the practice space where it sounded good. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I think there's just, I'm someone that likes the sound of bass in a room. You know, I like having, I'm, I'm a big fan of like hearing some spatial dimension in a recording, you know, like a record, like talk talks, laughing stock, or, you know, any shellac record, you know, any pretty much any fucking, I don't know, classic jazz album. Like Eric you could feel the out, room out to lunch. Yeah. You totally hear the room. Like it sounds like you can, it's like you're you can, teleported there and you can actually like, I don't know. I was about to say squatting, no pun intended with we were talking about squatting earlier, but just like, you're just sitting there hanging out and just like, like absolutely you, you feel it. Yeah. And so much like modern production is really good at like inventing a, sa- a sense of space. You know, like it does a really good job of, kind of doing this science fiction thing where it's like, all right, like this doesn't actually sound like a band performing in a room, but maybe it sounds like a band playing in fucking outer space. I don't know. Like, <laughs> it, and that's cool. Like that's a, a yeah. whole other art form and like lots of cool things can happen with that. I mean, when I did this uh, torment and glory record, I really wanted it to sound like the room. And after like two days of working on it, it's like, Nope, I'm, I'm going to totally just invent the space because I have one SM 57 and <laughs> my vaulted ceilings that are super weird. And like, this, this isn't a good space to capture, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I for me you do with, with what you can. Yeah, exactly. With, with a sumac record or a Russian circles record, my hope is that you get a sense that you're, you're there, you know, you're not in an invented space, but you're in, you're in the room with the band. And that's, uh, if I can't get that, that it's a little frustrating. Well, I was even going to ask, what about Sumac? I know that may you be held was released last year via thrill jockey. And I know those tracks were essentially recorded over multiple years mm-hmm. from what I remember and what I, what I gather from my research, but is there any sort of um, future recordings or any sort of touring or anything that you can uh, provide the Sumac fans with? Uh, if you're are, able to disclose it. Yeah. N- there's nothing super new in that, in that, uh, in, in the news of that realm, there is another uh, collaboration with KG Hino that. Awesome. I really yeah, enjoyed that. Yeah. Uh, Cool. Yeah. I, I mean, there, I know those records are a little bit more difficult for a lot of listeners just because they are. It's a little more niche, right? I mean, yeah. in, in that sense, uh, sonically speaking, but you know, I enjoy them for sure. Yeah. You, you know, you're having to do the tightrope walk with, with uh, the artists and you know, it, it gets a little shaky at times, but uh, the the one that's coming out is easily my, my favorite of the, the times that we've, worked with them. So I'm, I'm excited for that to see the light of day. But, uh, other than that, yeah, Sumex kind of in a holding pattern just cause Nick's visa ran out and redoing all the visa application stuff is kind of a lot of work. And, uh, you know, it only is valid for a certain amount of time. So if there's not any touring that could potentially happen, it's like, well, do we really want to, you know, do all this renewal stuff that when that process is occurring. Yeah, exactly. When it's like, well, we can't tour. So like why waste a year of, of the visa when we can't 
actually hey, well, generate I income. I can't wait to hear any material in regards to all your bands. I mean, it seems that there's a good amount of stuff in the pipeline. One thing I wanted to kind of bring up here is that I heard on another interview that Russian Circles has some material that is not meant to be played live, but maybe it might someday exist via an, e- uh, an EP release. Is this fact or fiction? And also you could tell me to shut up if I should not even be bringing it up right now. No, I mean, that's something that's always been in the back of our mind. And uh, because there are records like Geneva where it was, you know, we just indulged in every musical idea we had. And then when it came time to like go out and tour on it, it was just like, oh, we totally set ourselves up for failure here because you know, there's no way you can replicate it unless you're hiring additional musicians and all that. And we don't want to do that. So, you know, there's always this, a a bit of a tug of war between like just letting the imagination run wild and. And being able to still recreate that right live. And being able to recreate it. And and, and knowing that like on some level, we, we, we really are kind of this live entity. So it needs to be, you know, something that can exist in that realm. So the EP has always been like a thing we've talked about as a potential way of, of getting that stuff out there without feeling like we have to do the, you know, go out and play it all live. And that was something we were going to do during quarantine and something we still might do because there's definitely material for it. But what often happens is it just those songs wind up getting absorbed into the, the final album because we're just like, well, you know, there's a lot of heavy already. And if there's too much heavy, then it stops being heavy. And you need to have the pendulum swing the other way to help maximize the impact of the of the heavy. So Well, when I envision this EP, I'm imagining that you're sequ- all of you are sequentially ripping into a solo. Like Dave's doing a drum solo, then Mike's doing a guitar <laughs> solo, then you're just slapping the bass like Victor Wooden or Jacto Pastorius. I mean, that's what's going to happen, right? I think that's what the fans want. Oh, totally. Yeah, just total total jazz odyssey all the way. <laughs> just like no one says no to anything. <laughs> Every, everything's on the table. <laughs> exactly. But hey, um, you know, I've got to ask before this interview ends, we didn't really talk too much about beer, but What's been one of your favorite beers so far this year? I mean, I started with puppies. I got to end it with beers. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of beer. Um, I am trying to be better about my fandom of beer because I'm getting old. And, you know, as tends to happen with people as they get older, it's uh, harder to recover from indulging in beer so i'm kind of like a i'm like a a one one beer session guy these days so if i'm gonna drink a beer i want it to be something really tasty and and uh i don't know nice i guess let's say we're gonna hang out this afternoon what do you have in your fridge what would you say chris you gotta have this yeah maybe it doesn't have to be a, a specific brewery but an ipa a hazy ipa you know, a porter, a pilsner. Um, I'm definitely a, sour. a I'm, I'm definitely a hazy IPA guy at the moment. Um, matchless Brewing down in Tumwater, uh, a little south of Olympia here. They do a really good hazy IPA, um, but they also, you know, they're one of those breweries that just does small batch. So it's you know every 
time I go to the grocery store, there's four new cans of beer that they have in single tall boys. So I like that just cause it's, it feels like every time you're getting a beer, it's like a new thing and it's always a little different and it, you don't get tired of anything. So I'm, I'm a big fan of really anything they do. They do things besides hazy IPAs too, but we'll also your band Russian circles. You guys have your own signature black Pilsner. Yeah. That was another limited run, uh, out of a uh, wayfinder down in, uh, Portland. And I do have a couple cans of that left. That's a good one. It's a, yeah, it's like a dark Pilsner. It kind of a little bit like a Negromodelo kind of vibe, but a little. Ah, I like that. It's a little toastier, you know? Hey, well, maybe, you know, a brewery will make your own signature beer and maybe they'll call it Torment and Glory, maybe? Oh, yeah. yeah. I don't know. (laughs) I feel like uh, with a name like that, it's going to it's going to have to be like a 14 percent alcohol so that it's you know has the, tor- <laughs> the torment of the hangover but the, the glory of the drunk in it or something hey well brian it's been an absolute pleasure and i've just got to say thanks i can't wait until our paths cross and i can hear those delicious bass riffs and hey we can chat over a beer sounds good thanks chris yeah thanks again brian yep have a good one and that's my conversation with brian I had a blast, and I hope you did too. I hope you all learned some things about Brian that you didn't know before listening to this. I know I did. We talked about so many things, and I mean, who knows? Maybe I'll be hitting the gym soon. I'm going to be putting Brian's gym workout playlist to the test. I should post some before and after photos of myself and see if I experience any of these gains. On the musical side of things, We talked about his influences as a bassist, the pedals that he uses, his favorite soundtracks. We talked about Rush. Lots and lots of musical-related content. But even more so, as a bassist myself and a huge fan of Brian's, this was a special treat for myself. I'm super grateful I had this talk with him. Like I said, puppies and bass. Two things that I love very much. I'm going to hang out with my dogs and pick up my bass a little later and enjoy the rest of my day. And I hope you all do the same as well. Again, to all of you tuning in, as always, I appreciate it. Go smash that subscribe button. Leave a review. Reach out to me to say how it's going. You can go to interviewswithchris.com for any previous material or go on any major platform where you can hear a podcast. If you like what you're hearing, then subscribe and give some positive feedback. It's as simple as that, and it really does go a long way. Again, I appreciate you all. I hope you all are doing well. Thanks again, everybody, and I'll see you next time.